is recorded March 25th, 1999 at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. records a debate on the topic, Can a Woman Receive the Sacrament of Order? The participants are Father Joseph Fessio and Sister Maureen Fiedler. Copyrighted by Resurrection may not be duplicated without prior permission. Additional copies of this are available from Resurrection 3927 East Lake Street, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55406, toll free 1-888-809-0267. Jeremy McMullen, I'm the chairman of the Community Action Coalition here at Georgetown. Uh, a great deal of the work in organizing this event was actually done by the SFS service fraternity Delta Phi Epsilon. Uh, the reason that the CAC got involved uh, was because unfortunately uh, the SFS service fraternity does not have access to uh, university classrooms. So we were more than willing to, to get involved and to help them get access to a room such as this. Uh, I think that the atmosphere here is, is very collegiate and uh, will help a lot in advancing the ideas of tonight's event. The Community Action Coalition was an organization that uh, was founded in the 1970s. It became Georgetown's largest community service organization with students running basically every type of conceivable community service in the District of Columbia community. Uh, in the early 1990s, as service on campus became a bit more institutionalized through the Volunteer and Public Service Center, the CAC died out. It was revived two years ago to try to pump new student life and energy into community service as we deal with that. This year, as I've been chair, we've tried to take the conception of service and broaden that idea to uh, things not just soup kitchens, issues of homelessness, issues that we still care very much about and try to involve more and more students and also ensure that Georgetown continues its strong commitment to these areas, but also to reflect ideas of campus community here. So throughout the year we have tried to get involved in sponsoring forums that can really bring issues that define and even divide our community to the forefront. Uh, we are strong believers in the power of dialogue and discussion. It's not very often that we can find issues that both define and divide the community. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, event for us to be able to, to help out on this evening. Uh, but I'm confident that as the evening proceeds and progresses that eventually uh, the division will, will decrease and that we will be brought closer together. The Community Action Coalition also believes that individuals can have very strong ideas and that an individual does not have to be part of a club community and that it's very important to give issues like this access to rooms like this independent of club standing. And so I would encourage the students that are here to remember that idea and, and take it forward in the years to come. That said, it's my great privilege to introduce the participants in tonight's event. Our first presenter, at least I believe it's first, I don't have access to the actual format, but that comes later, uh, will be uh, Father Joseph D. Fessio. Father Fessio comes to us from San Francisco. He received his bachelor's degree in philosophy from Gonzaga University in the state of Washington, his master's degree from the same school. He also received a master's degree in theology from Lyon, France, and his doctorate in theology from the University of Regensburg in West Germany. Father Fessio has taught philosophy at Gonzaga University and at the University of Santa Clara in California. He's now in San Francisco where he has taught uh, systematic and spiritual theology, which I believe he still teaches, at the University of San Francisco. 
and where he was the founder of the St. Ignatius Institute at the University of San Francisco. He's the co-founder of Adoramus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the co-founder of Catholic Radio Network. We're very pleased to have him here with us tonight. Our second presenter is Sister Maureen Fiedler. Sister Fiedler is a co-director of the Quixote Center, a national Catholic-based justice center located in Brentwood, Maryland, near Washington, D.C. She coordinates, co-coordinates the work of Catholic Speak Out, CSO, one of the center's projects which organizes Catholics to work for justice, equality, and democracy in the internal life of the church. Since 1995, she has been a regular commentator on WAMU FM, an NPR station in the Washington, D.C. area, and an occasional commentator on NPR's All Things Considered at the national level. She is co-editor of the book Rome Has Spoken, a fascinating compendium of official statements from popes and councils that show how official Catholic teaching on 18 major issues has changed significantly through the centuries. An alumna of Georgetown University, where she received her PhD in government, she also holds a, a bachelor's degree in history from Mercyhurst College out in Erie, Pennsylvania. Maureen has a history of activism, writing and speaking for justice, equality, and peace. She has campaigned for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, spoken and written on feminist spirituality, and served as an advocate for change in U.S. foreign policy towards Central America. She now serves as a U.S. liaison to the international We Are Church movement. We're also pleased to have her with us tonight. Finally, I'd like to introduce our moderator of tonight's events. She's the very Reverend J. Augustin DeNoya. Since July 1983, he has been the Executive Director of the Secretariat for Doctrine and Pastoral Practices of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, serving the Committee on Doctrine, the Committee on Pastoral Practices, the Ad Hoc Committee on Healthcare Issues in the Church, and the Ad Hoc Committee for the Review of Scripture Translations. In December 1997, excuse me, Father DeNoia uh, was actually appointed by Pope John Paul II to the International Theological Commission. In 1998, he was awarded the, Ma the Master of Sacred Theology by the Dominican Order. A native of New York, he holds his pontifical license in theology from the Dominican House of Studies and received his PhD from Yale University in 1980. He's also a national speaker, speaker who has lectured in 30 dioceses in the United States. Before turning the time over to Father DeNoya, I would just like to make the announcement that immediately after tonight's events, there will be audio of, of tonight's event available uh, back outside of these doors for all of those who wish to purchase them. And with that said, I'll turn the time over to Father DeNoya for a prayer and then for an introduction of the rest of tonight. Thanks. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, we'll start with a prayer. Um, today is the Feast of the Annunciation, so I'll start with a prayer that's suited to that uh, feast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord God, when your Son came from heaven, Mary conceived him in her heart before she conceived him in her womb. Grant that by holy thoughts, just deeds, and words of truth, we may show forth in our lives the Christ whom we have received by faith and who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The, uh, just to give you a sense of the structure of this evening's uh, discussion, actually, Sister Maureen Fiedler will speak first for 25 minutes. 
Father Joseph Fessio will speak second for 25 minutes, approximately. Then there will be an exchange between the two speakers lasting approximately 20 minutes. Then there will be a summary, first by Sister Fiedler and then by Father Fessio of approximately three minutes apiece. Then there will be about 20 minutes allowed for questions from the audience and then the closing. This will uh, last, we hope, for about an hour and a half so that your expectation of being able to depart at 9.30 will be respected. There's no reason, however, for a conversation not to go on for a very long time thereafter with the speakers or with one another, but the official goings-on will be completed, hopefully, by about 9.30. My task as moderator will be simply, first of all, to read uh, one of the most important texts of the uh, Church's teaching on the subject matter for discussion, um, I also will have the obligation, the responsibility, which I will try to carry out with kindness, love, and um, respect for you, of controlling the questions. And I would hope that all of you would make your questions, if you have any, uh, to the point, that is, to the point of discussion this evening, uh, as brief as possible, avoiding, therefore, speeches of any kind. And, um, uh, and respectful of both of the speakers. It will be my job to uh, ensure that that takes place. I'm sure I won't have to interrupt anyone uh, who is asking a question. Also, I should mention that there have been some, before I read the text and then uh, get out of the way here, there are questions, of course, about an odd idea that one is not allowed to speak about this subject. Um, there is no such ruling. Uh, one cannot come to an understanding and deepening of the reflection of the nature of, of the gift uh, that Holy Orders is to the Church without speaking about it. So we mustn't think that we're transgressing here uh, any uh, uh, rulings uh, uh, of any kind. This is exactly the kind of debate and reflection that our Holy Father and indeed the entire theological tradition has always expected and indeed urged. Now I will read one short paragraph uh, simply to set the uh, tone. The, the debate, you notice, is very carefully entitled uh, by the organizers, uh, and that is Can. Uh, I don't, Can, I have the title here, excuse me. The title is, Can a Woman Receive the Sacrament of Order? This uh, way of framing the matter immediately uh, places us within a theological and doctrinal context rather than, say, a sociological or political one. All right, now let me just read to you the most uh, relevant passage from the Apostolic Letter on this matter, which was uh, published on Pentecost in 1994, promulgated by Pope John Paul II. And it's actually the, the penultimate paragraph in the letter. Wherefore, in order that all doubt may be removed regarding a matter of great importance, a matter which pertains to the Church's divine constitution itself, 
in virtue of my ministry of confirming the brethren, I declare that the Church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women, and that this judgment is to be definitively held by all the Church's faithful. Now, uh, let us begin with Sister Maureen Fiedler. Please welcome her. Well, good evening. Can everyone hear me? Um, first of all, let me say I'm delighted to be here tonight, first because I'm an alumna of Georgetown, and it's good to be home. Um, I'm also very proud to speak here tonight for the dignity and the equality of women in the Roman Catholic Church. And I believe that this topic of women's ordination is especially appropriate today because this is the Feast of the Annunciation. When Mary, with her yes to God's call, became the first person to be able to say of Christ Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood. I can't help but thinking that she needs to be joined by choruses of other women. This, as it happens, is also the worldwide day of prayer for women's ordination. It was proclaimed by Women's Ordination Worldwide, which is a growing global coalition of groups on six continents, who are calling our church to respect the fundamental equality of women and men and to ordain women to the ministerial priesthood. I am deeply grateful for those prayers in many tongues around the globe today. Now, Father Denoya touched a somewhat touchy subject, that, and I'm delighted to hear that he announced as I believe an official representative of the Bishops' Conference, that this subject is indeed open to ordination, or rather to discussion, the topic of women's ordination. Because I was going to suggest, since the headlines at the time that Ordinatio Sacerdotalis was published were saying that indeed this was a closed subject, and indeed the quotation that he read said it is to be definitively held, many certainly in the media interpreted that as closing it to discussion. Um, I was going to suggest that what you hear for the next two hours, you should imagine is what we would say if we were discussing the topic, to think of it as a virtual debate. But we don't have to do that. I want to begin the discussion tonight, actually, by laying out two different worldviews that generally form the backdrop for this subject. Now, I certainly cannot presume to describe Dr. Fessio's personal worldview. He can do that. He can subscribe to what I say or not. But I can characterize what I would call the common worldviews that describe, on the one hand, the opponents of women's ordination, and the other hand, the proponents of women's ordination. The first I call a patriarchal worldview, and the second an egalitarian worldview. Now, the patriarchal worldview assumes that the spirit inspires the church from the top down. The pope, cardinals, and bishops, 
make the decisions, the major decisions. They are ordained to rule and others to obey. The people of God have no fundamental role in decision-making and no voice in choosing their leadership. The church is not a democracy and never can be in this view. Doctrine is solid and unchanging. When Rome speaks, the case is closed. To protect the church from error, those who disagree with this established order are often punished, not burned at the stake, as used to be the case, but often threatened with silencings, loss of status, or position in the church. The patriarchal worldview also holds that women and men are fundamentally different and have different roles in life determined by gender. This is often called complementarity. In this model, some roles are actually closed to women, the ministerial priesthood, for example, and other roles control the rest of life, motherhood, for example. Uh, the same control, may I say, is never applied to fatherhood <laughs> by the practitioners of this point of view. It doesn't control the whole lives of the men who happen to be fathers. In this worldview, men's roles typically tend to be active, public, authoritative, and dominant. Women's roles tend to be passive, private, auxiliary, receptive, and even submissive at times. But proponents of this worldview often speak of women's roles in exalted terms. They even proclaim a belief in equality, but quickly add that women and men are different in ways that stretch far beyond their biology. Women's roles are sometimes called special or blessed, sometimes even more important than men's roles. This rhetoric tends to obscure the fact that these gender roles are not equal, not shared, and not mutual. The egalitarian worldview, on the other hand, presumes that the spirit inspires the entire community of faith, not just the pope and bishops. The laity are responsible adults who develop their views not because someone imposes a position upon them, but because they are persuaded that a certain position makes sense and that it's right and just. When it doesn't, they ask questions. Even sacrosanct topics for them are open to dialogue because that's how adults learn. And it's also how theories, understandings, culture, and yes, even the teaching of the church changes and develops over time. When dissenters are published, those with an egalitarian view often see it as a chilling attempt at mind control and certainly a violation of free speech. Egalitarians tend to favor broad participation in decision-making, ultimately hoping for a church that is the biblical discipleship of equals. Church teachings are not etched in stone. Change is healthy. Otherwise, the church would become a fossil. Indeed, many positions on important issues, such as slavery, ecumenism, and religious freedom, 
have changed dramatically over the centuries, as this book, of which I am the co-editor, Rome Has Spoken, documents. The egalitarian worldview also holds that women and men are fundamentally equal. Our biology is different, yes, but our biology does not define our lives. Men cannot bear children. Women cannot be sperm donors. True. But beyond strictly biological roles, only our imaginations and our talents limit our choices. Our social roles are not different and complementary. They are mutually shared. Separate but equal or different but equal is not equal. In my own experience, and I must relate this, my maternal grandmother once announced to me back in the 1950s my choices in life. She told me, she didn't think about nuns, I don't know why, but anyway, she told me I could be a mother, a nurse, a teacher, or a store clerk, period. She was a store clerk, that's why that got in there. <laughs> Luckily, I listened to my father, who, when I told him once at the dinner table that I wanted to be a nurse, looked over at me and asked, why don't you think about being a doctor? That was an aha moment for me. He broke me free of a constricting mentality. And so today, I and others with an egalitarian point of view rejoice that men can be engineers or they can be homemakers. And women can aspire to be teachers or senators, or dare I say it, Archbishop of Washington. <laughs> now, having painted that background, the question this evening is simple, simply, can women receive the sacrament of orders? Now, I find this a curious phrasing. It's like asking, if we lay hands on her, will it take? If we pronounce the words, will anything happen? Will she really be a priest at the end of it all? And so the question focuses on what it means to be a woman. To put it baldly, are women human beings? Really? Are we created in the image of God? Are we baptized Christians, redeemed by Christ? If we are, of course we can be ordained. Any documents from the Vatican notwithstanding. And if we're not, then what are we? Puppy dogs? Kitty cats? A different species of human being? A different type of Christian? For if we are different in that fundamental way, we are not equal to men. And that, my friends, is not the model of Jesus, nor is it the solemn teaching of the church as expressed at the Second Vatican Council. And I quote from the church in the modern world, one of the quotations of which you have on your paper about midway down the page, I believe. All women and men are endowed with a rational soul and are created in God's image. They have the same nature and origin, and being redeemed by Christ, they enjoy the same divine calling and destiny. There is here a basic equality between all, and it must be accorded ever greater recognition. Any kind, and this is so important, any kind of social or cultural discrimination in basic personal rights on the grounds of sex, race, color, 
social conditions, language, or religion must be curbed and eradicated as incompatible with God's design. It is deeply to be deplored that these basic personal rights are not being respected everywhere. And the example, note, as is the case with women who are denied the chance to freely choose a husband or a state of life. To say that women cannot be ordained flies directly in the face of this teaching. And so I submit to you that women can receive the sacrament of orders and they have the right to have their vocation tested. Moreover, the good of the church demands it. Why? I have seven reasons. First, the theology of the Christian person, as we have already discussed. Women and men are equals. We are made in the image of God. Second, without women in the priesthood, Christ is imaged in an incomplete way. Christ assumed and redeemed humanity, not maleness. This means that women and men can image Christ. And imaging Christ does not equate to physical likeness. It means filling the roles that Christ filled. Works of mercy and justice, leadership, decision-making, sacramental ministry, preaching, healing, and so forth. If a person cannot see Christ when a woman preaches or breaks the bread or leads a local church, the problem is not with the woman. The problem is the deficient imagination of the person doing the observing. Now, some claim that Christ, the image of Christ as bridegroom and the church as bride means that the male must stand in the place of Christ the bridegroom. Now, this is a beautiful image from Scripture, beautifully expressive of the love of Christ for the community. But it's a distortion to take this in the literal sexual sense and try to make church policy out of it. For example, since men are members of the church, Excuse me, the church is, after all, a community of women and men, not literally a female bride. And since men are members of the church, this would make them both the bride and the bridegroom. If you want to figure out the implications of that one, I'll leave it to you. But in a broader perspective, there are many analogies of Christ's love for the church. Why should this one be controlling? Jesus, for example, used the image of a mother hen with chicks. I wonder what the sex of the priest would be if we used that one. But in the end, all these arguments are merely analogies. Analogies are images to deepen understanding or perhaps prayer, but we cannot deify them and use them to determine church policy. Thirdly, to limit ordination to men is to limit God and sacralize masculinity. It is, I submit, a form of idolatry. Catholic teaching teaches that God is beyond all knowing, beyond any classification of race, gender, age, etc. Language is merely a tool to image God who cannot be expressed in images. To make God literally a male 
is to confuse the essence of God with what is merely a word image. To say that God cannot call women as well as men is to limit God's will. To make the maleness of Jesus a controlling element in imaging him is to confuse Jesus' maleness, which is incidental, with his humanity, which is fundamental to his redemptive role. Catholic teaching on justice demands that we eliminate sinful and oppressive discrimination. Now, our understanding of social sin evolves over time. It took the church 19 centuries to finally and definitively condemn slavery, for example. It took more than 20 centuries to recognize officially that sex discrimination is sinful and harmful to women. But following our call from Vatican II to read the signs of the times, as anyone knows, they cry out to us today that women across this globe, much more than men, suffer from poverty, illiteracy, violence, physical mutilation, and yes, even death, because they are women. A church that denies ordination to women participates in this sin because it tacitly sanctifies the very system of sexist thought that underlies these gross injustices worldwide. Fourth, Jesus modeled gender equality in his dealings with women. He called both women and men to ministry, commissioning, for example, the Samaritan woman and Mary of Magdala to go forth and preach. He never ordained anyone, women or men. The notion of priesthood evolved over time. It was the second or third century before it began to resemble what we know today. But what about the 12, you may ask? Contemporary biblical scholarship emphasizes that Jesus was a Jew, leading, with a, leading a reform within Judaism that only later became a Christian movement and then a church. The 12 in this context are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus' way of saying that all Jews are a part of the new covenant that he was establishing. And the Last Supper? We don't have a guest list for the upper room, unless you know a website where it's located. <laughs> and none of the Gospels say that only the 12 were there. We do know that it was a Jewish Passover Seder, a family meal which usually includes women and children. But whoever was present, did you ever ask yourself, why do the words take and eat apply to everyone, but do this in memory of me applies only to males or to the 12? The early Christian community applied these words to everyone, and it's time we did the same. Sixth. Ordaining women reflects our finest tradition, too long buried. Scripture tells us that women were deaconesses, preachers, missionaries, leaders of the early church. New research shows that women in early centuries led house churches and presided at the Eucharist in ways we would today recognize as priestly. Even Pope Gelasius, as late as the 5th century, complained that such practices still existed. And his view reflects the patriarchal side of a really bitter struggle over women's roles and leadership in the first centuries of the church. Now that theology, 
reinforced by the culture of imperial Rome, ultimately dominated Christianity. But egalitarian practices flourished in many places for centuries, and we're uncovering them only today. In our own time, women are ordained in other Christian churches, including the Episcopal Church, which has a concept of priesthood similar to our own, excuse me. And when Czechoslovakia was under communism, a woman named Ludmila Havarova, and probably other women, were ordained, she was ordained a priest by a bona fide Catholic bishop in order to serve the Czech underground church. Sadly, the Vatican refuses to recognize her heroic service as a priest for almost 20 years. But it's time to welcome Ludmilla and to celebrate our egalitarian tradition that has been buried by sexism all these centuries. Seventh and finally, the faithful support the ordination of women and the pastoral needs of the church today demand it. The canonical doctrine of reception says, and it's an ancient part of our tradition, that for a law to be effect an effective guide for the believing community, it must be received by that community. Quite clearly, a male-only priesthood is not a received doctrine. As anyone who knows the polling data will tell you, between 62 and 71 percent of Catholics in the United States, Canada, and Western Europe favor the ordination of women. And, moreover, we have a severe shortage of male celibate priests in the church today. Many of you may come from areas where parishes are closing. Many priests are reduced to being circuit riders, unable to give adequate pastoral care. And yet, we have women and married people ready to serve in priestly roles. It is time that we used the talents of those people and respected their calls, not just because justice demands it, but in order to avoid a Eucharistic famine. In closing, I would like you to imagine a woman student here at Georgetown University. Imagine with me that she is prayerful. She cares about the church. She loves theology, takes every elective she can take, wants to know more. She has designed and led creative prayer rituals. Her friends seek her out for counsel and advice. She has, in other words, the gifts of priesthood. I ask all of you, as you think about this woman, because she is the woman of whom we speak today, could you look at her and say no to her call to priesthood and assume for one minute that this is of the gospel? Would you give her a stone when she asks for bread? No, I say it is time that she break the bread so that we can all share it in the fullness of Christ's legacy. Thank you. Well, that was good.
Sister, thank you very much. I, I think that was honestly an excellent presentation, and I would hope to have the time to respond to many of those, maybe not all, mm -hmm. but I think she's really set the tone. She's, she's given the arguments, and I think she's given it very articulately, and a real discussion means to meet those arguments, and I, I will try and do what I can to lay the groundwork for answering some of them, and if time permits, all of them. Uh, before I do, I want to say I'm very happy to see that uh, we have a crucifix in this room. <laughs> and I notice it's the Franciscan crucifix of Saint of San Damiano, so the Jesuits here in Georgetown are clearly very ecumenical-minded. <laughs> bring in even a Dominican to moderate this debate. So we re I think we, uh, we're moving towards church unity here as best we can. Uh, I, too, uh, was delighted by the fact that this uh, discussion was going to take place on this wonderful feast of the Annunciation. Uh, I began with an agreement with Sister Fielder. And Amy, we both agreed that 10 minutes was not enough to present the groundwork for a real discussion, and so we did alter the program, I think, in a way that is going to make it more fruitful for all of us. But I do disagree with her when she says that uh, uh, Mary was the first one who could say, this is my body, towards Jesus. I mean, Jesus is not really her body. Uh, it's a false idea when a woman says the child within her is her body. It's from her body. It's flesh of her flesh and blood of her blood, but it's not her body. Uh, no more than her body is mine or my body is yours. Uh, so Mary didn't really say that. What Mary did say, however, and we know she said this, was fiat miki be it done unto me according to your word. Uh, Mary was obedient to a command which she could not understand. And because of that obedience, which she pondered in her heart, uh, she brought forth the Savior, and we celebrate that bringing forth that conception, the beginning of new life today. Uh, Sister had five points. I'm only going to, had seven. I'm only going to have five, but I'll have some subcategories in mind. Uh, the first is I'm not going to directly respond to all of her points just yet. I want to try and set a groundwork for that. Secondly, uh, I'm happy to be here uh, in the knowledge of the fact that the teaching of the church does not depend on human wisdom, hers or mine or yours. That is to say, the church's teaching is a received teaching. It comes through human, through human instruments, but it's a genuine revelation. It comes from God. And therefore, if she or I do not adequately present the church's teaching, that leaves the church's teaching intact. It's our failure to fully come up to the level of the teaching. It's not the teaching's failure. Nevertheless, you're here at an academic institution. And if you're studying theology, one of the great definitions, a little uh, laconic one, is fides querens intellectum. That is faith, what we receive from God, from above. We try to understand. We seek to understand it. And that faith, which we try to understand, is an organic faith. Catholic does not simply mean universal in the sense of widespread. It also means katholon, according to the whole, that which is an organism. And therefore, my third point is we can't take the issue of women's ordination as an isolated issue. And I think Sister very rightly pointed out the different mentalities, uh, the patriarchal view, the egalitarian view, which one brings to the, this question. But beyond that, we also have to see how the question of ordination fits in with the total theology the church has elaborated over the centuries. What I can do in the few minutes that I'm going to take is only give you an outline. 
Uh, I can't even attempt to persuade, but I hope what I can do is give you uh, kind of a schematic diagram of where the church draws the bases for this teaching and perhaps point you in the direction for further study or further reading. Fourth point is that um, I want to be as fair as I can, and I think Sister is under a, a pretty unfair burden here because uh, the church's teaching, its position on the non-ordination of women uh, is, according to her own mind, expressed by her authoritative teachers uh, based on sacred scripture, on unbroken tradition, and on the living magisterium of the church, the threefold bond that links us with Christ, as the Vatican Council clearly said in Lumen Gentium. And it may be, uh, even for the sake of argument, I would deny this, but for the sake of argument, there might have been uh, some teaching or some attempt to ordain a woman or a deaconess. Uh, even if that were true, the vast amount of tradition in the church's 2,000 years points to a calm reception of the fact that the church does not consider herself authorized to depart from this tradition of ordaining men only. And therefore, I say, it's an unfair burden because she has to argue against the almost, if not entirely unanimous, tradition of the Catholic Church. But I like to, uh, I'd like to try and uh, relieve her some of that burden, make it more fair. Number one, I've agreed to be here in the oppressor's role uh, and let her be in the victim role <laughs> so that that will somehow balance things because I'm part of the patriarchal you know, order of things that's oppressed women all these centuries, according to this point of view. Uh, also, I'll, I'll try and uh, make it more difficult for myself. I'm not simply going to try and give reasons why factually the church has done this, but why the church necessarily had to do it. I will hold the thesis that given the creation which God intended to call into being, and we know that by what it is, uh, that it would be impossible for God to be referred to in, the, in his fullness as anything but Father. It would be impossible for the second person of the Trinity to be incarnated as anything but a man, as the Son made flesh, and it would be impossible for the church to ordain women. So I've set myself a pretty high, high barrier. I, I hope that way I've kind of equalized the playing field, sister. Uh, my fifth point is that um, good people disagree on this issue. And I was very delighted. I don't know Sister Feeler. I've read some of her works. I've read about her. But I was delighted to see a very careful and articulate laying out of the arguments in favor of the ordination of women. And I see, therefore, this is not something you know, based on prejudice. It's not something which has not been thought out. Uh, Good people disagree on this issue within the Catholic Church. And I, I want to spend a little bit of time on why I think it's harder for Catholics and others today in the 20th century and almost the 21st century to, to see the fundamental reasons that the Church has for this teaching. I'll do this very quickly. I mean, uh, this is highly simplified, uh, but it has to do with cultural conditioning. You know, some will say, although Sister did not say this, uh, that Jesus was kind of culturally conditioned. He ordained only men because that was sort of the feeling of the time. That was in the culture. But cultural conditioning cuts both ways. We're part of a cultural too, a culture too, and we may be conditioned as well. And I would say that uh, we are children in some sense of the Enlightenment. Again, this is a high simplification, but 
the Enlightenment and German idealistic philosophy had a tendency, it seems to me, to move towards what we have in our own society today, the idea of the autonomous self, uh, the individual human person as completely independent with rights that are being vindicated and relationships that are always voluntary. And the result has been, to put it schematically, that man has been separated from God and reason been separated from faith. The Holy Father has written about that recently in uh, Fides et Ratio. But I would say an even more insidious consequence of an excessive rationalism and an excessive reliance on, the, on total human autonomy has been the separation of the individual from the family. And I think this has been the result of a society which is industrialized, in which technology, uh, artificial things, achievement, performance, getting the task done, moving forward, has all played a role. So that now a person, for example, in an in a office or a factory, uh, is interchangeable. I mean, if that person is sent to some other state or some other country, that's part of normal business practice these days. The thought of whether that tears up a family or a neighborhood or pulls up roots that are in the soil uh, is pretty secondary. I think that uh, we see this, again, summarily, I would say, in our own constitution. It's a wonderful document. I know a lot of people in this room, uh, in this, this city, in this district of Columbia here, uh, spend time arguing and debating and defending it. But, you know, I think it shows its Enlightenment origins in one fundamental flaw that's there at the beginning, and that is it speaks of the individual and it speaks of the state, but it says nothing about gender. It says nothing about mothers and fathers and children. It says nothing about the family. And that constitution, therefore, I believe, is by itself incapable of defending the family. And we're seeing, I believe, in our, our time, the unraveling of our society, the destruction of the traditional family uh, because of this enlightenment mentality of the autonomous self over and against the contractual state. Now, there's much more that can be said about this. And this could be debated, be a topic all on its own. But I would say that this society that we live in, which is this Enlightenment society, uh, which is overly rationalistic, uh, which does tend to detach the individual from normal organic relationships, which does tend to see men and women in their functional roles as opposed to their deeper, intimate, spiritual, ontological persons, that kind of a mentality makes it harder for us to see that the differences between men and women are not, as Sister said, strictly biological. They're more than that. If you want more on this, I would recommend a book called Chance or the Dance by Thomas Howard, in which he contrasts the ancient worldview that the whole universe is a cosmic dance, that everything which exists is symbolic of other things. That is to say that everything has a meaning. It points beyond itself. And the modern scientific worldview, the chance that everything can be analyzed into its component parts and its little elements, and that those elements by themselves have no meaning. That is to say, to put it you know, very summarily, on the one hand, the dance, where everything means something, and the other hand, the chance, where nothing means anything. But he, he treats that masterfully in a book called Chance of the Dance, published, by the way, by Ignatius Press. <laughs> now, I, I want to outline now the foundations of the church's teaching on the non-ordination of women. Again, this is going to be a very summary, but I hope it will provide a basis for discussion, 
an interchange and perhaps future study on your part if you're interested in this. It begins, as do all Christian teachings, in the Trinity. And in the Trinity, we have, first and foremost, a family. We don't have a one-person God, a monadic God. We have a God who is tri-personal, who is three persons in one God. Already, relationship is essential to that. And, interestingly, it seems to me, for the argument tonight, discussion tonight, You've got the Father who is fully God, and as the Greeks would say, the origin without origin. Is the Son less God than the Father? No. The Son is perfect God, just as the Father is perfectly God. And yet the Son is not the origin. The Son receives himself from the Father. And so we have in the Trinity this mysterious truth that the Church teaches, which, while being mysterious sheds light on our life and our experience, namely that being receptive, that being obedient, that being totally dependent on another person is not a diminishment in your dignity. The Son is not less God because the Son is totally received from the Father. And so we have both equality and differentiation in the Trinity. We have in the Trinity also hierarchy. Sister talked about the two views of the world, the hierarchical, the patriarchal, and the egalitarian. In the Trinity, you have a hierarchy. You have an order. The Father is above the Son, and yet the Son is equal to the Father. This is a mystery, no question about it. But it's not only a hierarchy, the Trinity happens to be a patriarchy. That is, the one who is at the top of the order in the Trinity, the personal order, is the pater, the father. Now, Sister has said that this is mere language. But you know, you have a, trouble, a difficult time getting out of mere language because we have to express ourselves in language. And all our language of God is going to be metaphorical because we don't know God as he is. Nevertheless, the language about God, which is drawn from human experience, revealed to us by God in the Old Testament and the New, is the highest form of metaphor we have. To call God a force is to take a metaphor from the lowest level, the inanimate level. To call God uh, powerful, uh, to call God... Uh, all-embracing all or whatever. These things come from lower levels of reality. So when we talk about God as Father, God as King, and when I say we, when the Scripture talks about that, we're using the metaphors which are closest, or I should say perhaps least unlike God. But notice the Trinity is both patriarchal and egalitarian. And I would agree with much of Sister's characterization of patriarchy and egalitarianism, and what she said, I, I think she uh, overemphasizes some things which I disagree with, but I still think the overall characterization is correct. But the point is, it's not either or. The Catholic Church is always et et, both and. Both patriarchy and equality. Is that hard to combine? Yes, it's hard to combine. But should we be surprised to find the world like that if the world, and not just human beings, is a reflection of God? And if God 
is hierarchy, patriarchy, and equality. So the Trinity comes first. Secondly, creation. God speaks. God speaks and the world comes to be. He speaks into the void. Being is. He creates it good. And on the sixth and last day of creation, he creates man male and female. And it was very good. And when he created us male and female, some think that the main reason for that is either procreation and the sustenance of the race, survival of the race, or sexual intimacy and friendship, or both. Obviously, it's both. Incidentally, Humanae Vitae, uh, the papal encyclical, which uh, re reiterated the church's teaching against artificial contraception, is based in Genesis. There's two accounts of creation. Go forth and multiply, procreation. Flesh from my flesh, bone from my bone, my helpmate. Intimacy, unitive. So the procreative, the unitive way are, are there right in Genesis. But there's more to that creation. Many good scholars, C.S. Lewis, one of them, have pointed out the fact that when God created us male and female, he did it also to reveal something. He's going to reveal something about himself and something about us and something about our relationship to him. It is biological that only a man can impregnate and only a woman can be impregnated. But that biological fact is a natural symbol which God used in creation to give us an idea of how he was the father who spoke into the void, which received that word and came into being. So the creation is not just for to, of man and woman. It's not just for procreation, not just for union. It's also for natural symbolism. Thirdly, the fall. In the garden, there was the tree of good and evil, and there was the tr knowledge of good and evil on the tree of life. They were not to be touched. Why not? Because they're gifts. You don't grab gifts. You receive gifts. And again, this will be controversial. It needs a lot more discussion, but let me summarize it this way. The sin in the garden, as symbolically or metaphorically or mythologically expressed in, in a revealed and inspired mythology, is that the woman acted like a man. That is, instead of receiving the fruit, according to the order that was given, instead of saying, let it be done to me according to your word, she grasped the fruit and took it because the serpent, always represented, by the way, as a beast and a male, that's the, the feminine bias of Scripture, obviously. <laughs> the serpent tempted her. And what does she do? She turns around to, to Adam, and Adam now acts like a woman instead of a man. And he refuses to exercise his legitimate authority and instead uh, submits in an abusive way. So both of them abused the role of the other in that. That, that needs a lot more discussion. I realize I can see a lot of uh, Snickers on that. <laughs> but uh, this, you know, it's pretty hard to give, you know, 2,000 years of tradition in only 20 minutes. But uh, two, two final points. The incarnation... Uh, the incarnation is a principle which shows that the body is not just biological. That is to say that when God takes on human flesh and they are one, we don't have manichaeism anymore, the flesh is bad, nor do we have idealism that only spiritual things are good. We have the body meaning something meaningful. That is to say that 
we, we can't say that men are merely biologically men and women are merely biologically women. That would be to, to undercut and undermine the whole continuity of the spiritual and the material which the Incarnation came to stamp its seal upon. It wasn't taught by nuns, you see, and I can't, I can't write well. Uh, but what is the role of Mary when God reveals himself in the Incarnation as male, God is not male, but Jesus is male, because you can't be a son and you can't be a bridegroom without being a male, unless you're in San Francisco uh, <laughs> or some other places. But what is Mary's role? Mary's role is to stand, as the Father said, in loco totius humani generis. She stands for the whole human race. And even some fathers say totius creationis, of all of creation. Why is that? Because the role of woman in the garden, in Mary, is to raise the receptivity of the world to a personal level so that just as God spoke into the, the void, into the nothingness, and it became being, so he speaks into the heart and mind of his servant, his handmaid Mary, who says, he's looked upon me in my nothingness. And she, therefore, stands for all of us. Sister said that uh, if this bridegroom is taken literally, that is seriously, and if analogy is something real and not just a metaphor, then we've got the problem of men representing both Christ and the church, which is feminine. But that's exactly right. Here is the challenge that Revelation gives us to move us out of our limited mentality. Men have got to learn to be brides of Christ. It's not part of our imagination. It's not part of our way of thinking. We have to learn to do that. We've got to be receptive creatures of whom Mary is the perfect example. But women have to learn how to be sons of God. Not just children of God, that too. But sons in the Son. Truly one with Christ. I'm almost finished. Ecclesiology or the church. I think the bride and body imagery are very important. Mary is the bride. The church is mystically one in her. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is also the body of Christ. But body because of bride. Because Mary and in her all of us as creatures is the perfect bride. And she receives from without the life and the grace of the bridegroom who is the son of God himself made flesh. Then Christ and Mary, the bridegroom and the bride, become two in one flesh and the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is a legitimate image, but it's dependent in a certain sense upon bride of Christ. Finally, in the sacramental life of the church, uh, Christ is not just a human being, he is a male. Uh, for the reasons given in creation by God, to have natural symbols which would properly re uh, reflect God's relationship to his creation on the natural level and Christ's relationship to the church on the supernatural level. Christ and the priest, therefore, acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, not just of Christ the body, but in persona Christi capitis, in the person of Christ the head. And that's why the priest can only be a man, because only a man can be a bridegroom. And the, that Christ is truly a bridegroom, and the church is truly a bride. Do I have any more? I've got one more thing I want to say. Okay, but it's a long thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> I want, to, uh, I want to conclude this with uh, 
what I think is a scriptural passage that is of extreme importance. And it's one that at first is very shocking, so shocking that people leave it out. It's even been left out officially the lectionary in Ireland. Uh, if you start with Ephesians 5.22, you'll often hear it said that that says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Now, I'm not going to defend that because that's not what Scripture says. If you look at St. Paul, verse, chapter 5, verse 22, what he really says is, Haigunaikes tois idios andrasin hos tokurio. Women to your own men as to the Lord. In fact, if you want to be slavishly literal and you translate idios, the word idiotes comes from that. You say women to your idiot husbands as to the Lord. But the problem with that, that verse does not demean women because that verse doesn't do anything. There's no verb in that verse. Where do you get the verb? You go back to verse 21. What's the verb? Hupotesamenoi alelois en fabo Christu. Being subordinate to one another in the fear or reverence of Christ. Mutual subordination within which, under Christ, women are to be subordinate to men. Ah, but wait a second, that's not over, because hupotisamenoi is not a main verb. You've got to all the way back to verse 18 from the main verb. What's the main verb? you love this, you hoyas. It's methuskase, which means get drunk. But actually, there's an, there's an adverb. There's an adverb. Me methuskase. Don't get drunk, oino on wine. Ala pleirusse in pneumati, but be filled in the spirit. That's the main verb. Paul is talking to husbands and wives, and what does he say? He, he lists a series of participles. The first one is laluntes haotois, talking to one another, equality, speaking to one another, but not just talking. Laluntes haotois en psalmois kai humnois kai adois pneumaticais, in psalms and hymns and spiritual odes. We're talking harmony here. We're talking music. We're talking differentiation, not monotony. And then Paul goes further. Adontes, caipsalantes, he emphasizes oding or singing and psalming, making psalms, encardiehemon. And then eucharistuntes, pantote caihuperpanton, that is, eucharisting, giving thanks everywhere, pantote caihuperpanton, and over all things in anomati Jesu Christu. Only then, by the way, all those verbs are doing verbs, okay? Those are doing verbs. Only then comes the being verb, hupotesamonoi. After you've got this harmony, this music, this symphony, where you're speaking as equals but differentiated, now, within that, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, women to your own husband as to Christ. That's, that's one verse, okay? I mean, that's one sentence that's in seven verses. You know, when you read that, you say, okay, it looks like Men get the better end of the stick on that one, even though it's very beautifully done, it's harmony, it's music. But you know something? That's not the last word. Paul then continues, Hoy Andres agapate teis Men, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That is, Paul is telling men, oh yes, within the family, you're the head as Christ is head of the church. And the woman must respect you as the church respects Christ. But, you must love your wives as Christ loved the church to make her holy and present her spotless and without wrinkle to, the, to himself. And what does that mean? You have got to be ready. If there's a dispute, if there's a difference, if there's something where you don't agree or someone has to suffer, you have to be the one that gives in. You have to be the one that suffers. You have to bear the cross. If necessary, you have to die for your wife. Now, 
is this image of marriage fulfilled anywhere? To some degree, in beautiful Catholic marriages or beautiful Christian marriages, mostly not. It's mostly abused. And men dominate women many times, and that's an abuse. But abusus non tolit usum. The abuse does not destroy the proper use. And Paul concludes this section with this beautiful, you know, pithy phrase. It's in verse 32. Ta musturian tuta mega est in this mystery is great. Ego de lego es Christon kai esten ecclesian. And I speak of Christ and the church. So the, the, the beautiful vision that Paul has, what I believe is a harmonious position that is both egalitarian and hierarchical is the vision of harmony of la luntes, adantes, psalantes singing together in our hearts with a submission where the woman wants to submit to the man because she knows the man loves her so much he will die for her. You know, this is, obviously, it's hard to hold these things together, but that's what the Catholic Church is. And what I would pray is that we can come to a greater awareness of this so that we can all say with Mary, Fiat Miki, let it be done to be according to your word. Let me enter in to the divine dance, to the cosmic liturgy, to the equality and differentiation which God has made from himself, Trinity, in the world and in us. Thank you. Father Fessio's fluency in Greek restores our confidence in Jesuit education, I must say. but also his profundity. Now we uh, move into the second phase of this discussion. There are some seats, should anybody be getting tired, even though they say reserved, there are quite a few seats up front. So if you want to come uh, to the front row, I know you're Catholic, so that's (laughs) not very likely to happen, but anyway. Okay, so now we will have the second part where questions and a little interchange between our two speakers. First, uh, Sister Maureen Fiedler. Right. Yeah, and we'll, we'll hold this one strictly to 20 minutes. We've pretty much agreed to that, right? Sure. Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, I trust that Father Fessio will uh, speak English rather than Greek for this point, since I certainly can't proclaim to understand Greek. Um, let me just make one, one slight correction here. I don't see myself in a victim role, okay. uh, rather in a liberating role. At least that's what I prefer. I'd like to, good, then, then I won't see myself as an oppressor then. Well, that's, that's good. I'm glad okay. you don't. However, I, I must admit, I, I, I have to question many of the concepts good. that you put forth, and I'm sure you'd expect this. You talked about uh, tradition. You talked about, you really talked about gender roles as I heard you all the way through. You even said something which I must admit sort of blew my mind that the sin in the garden, which I always thought was disobedience, was. Because Eve acted like a man. It may have made me want to say, long live Eve. Anyway, it's, um, uh, what does it mean to you to be acting like a man? Is this because she did something that was authoritative and commanding, and he was acting like a woman because he obeyed her? God help us. Because the life and the knowledge of good and evil was meant to be given to us by God as a gift we receive. And women... In, in their bodies and in their spirits, seem to better uh, image this beautiful receptivity and contemplation of the gift that comes from God. And that one problem with our world 
this is over-masculinized. We have too many committees, too many meetings, too many you know, uh, aggressive type things, achievement, competition. I, I think that's a typically not universally and entirely. This is mathematics. This, this is human science here. But I think that, that women are more altruistic, are more prayerful, are more receptive. And if they start to act like men and be more aggressive, then that violates their own role. And they, I mean, it's a generalization, I admit. So it, it's, well, it's more than a generalization. I think in society as a whole, it's generally called sexism. Uh, it's, if you pardon my saying that, it's, um, you know, would you deny, uh, for example, let me, let me put this directly as we understand it in the church, because you also talked about the, you know, imaging Jesus ahead and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, in the church, right now, our current practice links jurisdiction with orders which means that it's men in orders, priests, bishops, the pope, what have you, who are in the paramount leadership positions in the church. So I'd like you to imagine for just a minute, suppose we separated those two. Could you imagine a woman, a non-ordained now for sacramental ministry, but rather that she would do leadership and decision-making as men commonly do in the church today? And by that I mean participate in the formulation of doctrine, the preparation of church documents, reform of canon law, perhaps electing bishops or choosing bishops or the Pope, for example. Sister, I've got a very bad imagination, but in this case I don't need one because they do it already. We do? We, Where? We've got, I, I, I'm not sister, aware that I've I mean, I, I'm not people. sure. As far as, if you want to talk about power, which I think is, is somewhat secondary in this whole question, the power in the Catholic Church in this country, and by the way, this country is only 7% of the church, but still, is in the chancery offices, and it's run by women. I mean, I, I mean, I can tell you... Uh, how I, many bishops of, are women? How many bishops are run by their chancery offices? I don't... If you visited... I dare say, if you visited most chancery offices in the United States, they're quite overwhelmingly male, as a matter of fact. Sister, and sorry. And at least my understanding sorry, is that... that's factually wrong. That's factually wrong. Anyway, let, let's, take a, okay. let's take a very specific example. Not long ago, Cardinal Ratzinger was in the United States and had a meeting in California which produced some statements on women, some statements on gay and lesbian rights, and other kinds of things. How many women participated in that meeting? I wasn't there. I have to ask Father Denoya. <laughs> Yeah. No, no women participated in that meeting. Uh, how many women participated in the reform and the change of canon law? I don't even know, but there's... there's how the, many the women, women participate in the election of the Pope? Well, that's true. That's, that, there's no women participating right. in that. How many women participate in sister, the selection wait, of sister, bishops for diocese? Wait a minute. Uh, uh, you are taking a very clericalist view of the church. You seem to think that what really makes you good and holy and valuable is being a cleric. I don't think that God, that's... help us, no. <laughs> well, of course you do, because you think electing the Pope is an important thing. No, no. What I'm... No, as a matter of fact, <laughs> it is a little bit important, I dare say. Uh, well... But this is, I, this I, is not I, to be confused I, I, I don't with think, holiness, I don't think. Sister, this, this, this. I, I don't think it is that important. You don't think who the Pope is has any influence on the church or the world? It's not going to influence how you live your life, is it? In, in, I, as a matter, how many people here think that this pope has influenced their life in some way or oh, another? All right. all right, there you are. Well, yeah, that's about a third. Uh, I think I dare. <laughs> but I mean, look at I. I Do I'm men a, count the ballots? I'm a, I'm a Catholic and I'm a Jesuit and I'm a priest and I want to obey the pope. But I don't really care who the pope is. I'll obey the pope whoever he is. I don't care who they elect as pope. Mm -hmm. Let them elect who they want. Yeah. 
I think the, the question is, though, what, I, what I'm getting at in my question has nothing to do with holiness. It has to do with whether you believe women are capable of leadership in the church, because I believe that this kind, your notions of gender roles, namely that somehow when women are authoritative, when they're in leadership positions, appears to me at least, what mm -hmm. I hear you saying, mm -hmm. is that when women exercise these roles, they are somehow in a foreign role. They're taking on a male role. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, and so what I'm doing is applying this to the church. Sister, and as long as you look at women and men as purely functional, then you're going to judge their value by what they do and the role they play. But I don't think that's the primary way of looking at men and women. And I think that the history of the church shows that women have been tremendously influential with tremendous power. Look at the Catholic directory. Look at the Catholic hospitals and orphanages and schools. I mean, what really influences people? The Pope sitting in a room in Rome or the sister teaching the kids in the school or helping, poor, helping the poor who are in a, in a, in a shelter? What, well, I, the, sister who's, the sister who's teaching... The sister who's teaching in that classroom is often authorized to teach what came, in fact, out of Rome, where she had no voice whatsoever in formulating that. I didn't either. This is, but, <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I am not, I'm, I wouldn't say, I certainly, any of the men here who are laity, likewise, certainly had no role in this, and I recognize that a lot of priests also do not, but those that are, in fact, in authoritative positions, whether it's bishop or pope, etc., in the church, are, in fact, solely men, and solely men in orders who make those kinds of ultimate decisions, and from what I'm hearing you say, that you would see it as impossible that women could fill those roles. Well, those roles is a little bit general. I, I think that the purpose of the hierarchy, which is not going to exist in heaven, in heaven the hierarchy is, only of, is only of love. Yeah, well, I'm with you on that, sister. And I mean, I, I will only yield to you all the power which I supposedly have as a priest, because I'm not aware of what it is, except to yeah. confect the sacrament and to forgive sins. But the, the fact is, women have a tremendous role in the church, doing many things. They do not have the, the specifically sacramental role of ministry. That's what they don't have. But neither do, I mean, men can't, get pregnant and have babies either. So there's, there's all kinds of differentiation yeah, in the but, world. Uh, well, but we're talking, there's a big difference here between the strictly biological role and the roles that are well, social see, roles or sacramental roles that go well beyond biology. There's nothing about my biology, I don't, I don't think there is unless you can think of it, which would prohibit me from consecrating the, the uh, bread and wine. There's nothing about my biology, and there are many women, because in fact we have a lot of pastoral practice, it would prohibit us from administering the sacrament of reconciliation. Indeed, I know dozens of women in our church who routinely hear the confessions, if you will, of people to whom they minister, and these people are crying out to receive the sacrament from these women, and yet they're not ordained and don't feel that they could give it and, or that the people that they're ministering to would not receive it, even if they told them their sins were forgiven in a pastoral sense of the word. Well, you see, no. you, you keep referring to a clerical, functionalistic view of the church and say that women are... I, I admit that women are more compassionate than men in some cases and women are more holy than men in some cases. But that's not the question. It's not just a question of a biology. The, the Eucharist is the bridegroom-bride relationship, but it's not just biology. It's, it's spirituality. It's ontology. It has to do with our very person. And I, I don't think you're just your body as a woman. You're a woman. Spiritually, this is known as dualism in philosophy of separating your spirit and your intellectual life from your material side. 
I, I guess we're into a conversation here, but I certainly believe, let me say, that we are whole human beings in this church, body and blood, and, and body and spirit. I don't believe um, that, um, uh, well, let's put it this way, that, you know, we're whole human beings, and um, I don't believe that women are necessarily holier or more compassionate or anything either. of that than men. I don't either. I know plenty of men in my own life who understand and believe and act out a very compassionate role in life, and I think mm -hmm. this is wonderful. What I'm, what I'm also trying to get at here is a lot of what you say about tradition and these roles in the church is culturally conditioned, is it not? But yours like isn't. When you talk about scripture... But, but yours isn't. No, but sexism is dominant in this. When you look at scripture, who are the authors of scripture? They are men. Who are the ones who have handed down to us this so-called sacrosanct teaching of the church? They are men. It is only because we now have wonderful feminist scholars, people like Elizabeth Schuster Fiorenza and Rosemary Ruther mm. and Karen Torgensen and others, who have looked at this tradition with a new eye and have said we have to understand that it is men that have been the authors of this, we have to now look at it with a woman's eye to understand the distortions that have been handed down and that indeed there are, there's a lot of sex roles that are implicit there and we have to sort them out. They're not revelation. Sister, I want to say that I'm, I'm happy to hear you make these arguments and the fact that you're a woman does not at all detract in my mind from the good arguments that you make. But, I would hope not. I mean, my God, how generous of you. Well, I mean, but, but you, you're talking about... You, but you, the fact that sister, your man doesn't detract sister, from yours. Fine, but right. sister, uh, I, I, do, I, I think I should have a chance to respond to this last thing, okay? Uh, because I mean, you implied that because scriptures are written, you know, the author's scriptures were male and so on, therefore there's something wrong with them, something deficient in them, and that's sexism, because you're saying because they're men, they can't receive God's revelation adequately and, and transmit it adequately. That's sexism. Summary. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you, both speakers. Now they will have the opportunity, Sister Maureen first and Father Fessio, to summarize their view in a kind of three-minute summary. Then we will open uh, to questions from the floor. Thank you. Okay. Well, first of all, just a word on that, the last statement that... Um, uh, in terms of scripture, uh, it's men wrote the scriptures, men handed down to us the tradition. We're trying to sort out from that what is the essential message from the sexism that has been there. And that's, that is sexism on their part, as a matter of fact. And the job of a good scriptural exegete today is to sort out the sexism from the essential teaching. Um, in summary, let me say, you've confirmed an amazing amount of what I have said. You say that roles are different. You've embraced the patriarchal view that I described as far as I can tell. And may I say, you can't have it both ways. Women are either equal or they are not. And if we are not, as apparently we are not in your worldview, this is not the teaching of the church. However, I want to assure you I'm not going to report you to Rome for that. Uh, I think it is important to understand that what is not assumed is not redeemed. Jesus assumed our human nature and redeemed both men and women. 
If we were not redeemed, we could not be baptized. And that's the reason that famous bumper sticker says, ordain women or stop baptizing them. It goes together. But I would like to say, I think, I guess in summary, that all of these distinctions or clerical roles or leadership roles, all of these are important. But what I care about most is a liberating church. What I care about, what I pray about, is Mary's message in the Magnificat and Jesus' description of his own mission in the fourth chapter of Luke. I've come to, to liberate the poor, to set free the captives, captives of a mentality of gender roles that are constrictive and that would dare to interpret an entire religious tradition to make women submissive. It's the role of Jesus to liberate, and Mary preaches that liberation as well. The 1971 Synod of Bishops said, anyone who dares to, or to preach justice to the world must first be just in their own eyes. We will never have a just church until women are equal. We will never be able to fulfill Jesus' liberating mission until women are the equals of men in this church and to, until women, too, have, are open to, be, to receiving the priesthood in its fullness in this church. That's my hope. That's my faith. I want that to be shared by men and women. I want all of these rules and laws and so forth. They're not important. What's important is that we love one another. And if we love one another, we're not over or under. We're not a hierarchy. We are equals. And that's the way it must be to be like Jesus. Thank you. Well, I think this has been a fruitful evening, Sister. And I, I think it's been a bit rushed towards the end. It would be fun to spend more time discussing these things at greater length. I think you pointed out some very important issues. Uh, I, I feel also that you confirm some things that I've said. Uh, when you say, for example, that uh, men are, women are, and men are either equal or they're not, I mean, that is a typical Enlightenment way of looking at things. That is to say, it's either this or it's that but not both and. And I think just as a trinity is both equality and hierarchy, the relations of the sexes is both equality and hierarchy. Uh, Chesterton put it this way. He said, I don't want to get in an argument about the difference between a knife and a fork. I mean, they're both equal utensils, but they both are different. Uh, you talked about Jesus uh, redeeming us all because he's human. That's true. But he's also male. I mean, he's both human and he's a male, just as Mary is human and is a female. And I think that you, you can't have a dance if everyone is equal. Uh, maybe some of the things that you folks out there call dancing would qualify for that, but the to real traditional dancing, you, you've got differentiation and different roles. I would like to conclude by just quoting a passage uh, from a little article. This is by Peter Kraft, who I think very well and better than I did tonight certainly summarizes the arguments against priestesses. But he quotes C.S. Lewis, 
And this is a bit provocative, but I'm leaving town early tomorrow morning, so I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to conclude with it anyway. C.S. Lewis, not a Catholic himself, saw, point, uh, saw the point better than most Catholics do. And here's the quote from Lewis. Why should a woman not, in this priestly sense, represent God? Suppose the reformer stops saying that a good woman may be like God and begins saying that God is like a good woman. Suppose, he says, that we might just as well pray to our mother, which art in heaven, mm-hmm. as to our father. I do it every day. Yeah. That's true, but she doesn't answer. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Suppose, suppose he suggests that the incarnation might just as well have taken a female as a male form and the second person of the Trinity be as well called the daughter as the son. This was written in 1946, and I knew you'd agree with a lot of this, sister, but that's why I'm reading it. Suppose, finally, that the mystical marriage were reversed, that the church were the bridegroom and Christ the bride. All this, as it seems to me, is involved in the claim that a woman can represent God as a priest does. Christians think that God himself has taught us how to speak of him. To say that it does not matter is to say that all the masculine imagery is not inspired, is merely human in origin. And this is surely intolerable. Or, if tolerable, it is an argument not in favor of Christian priestesses, but against Christianity. It is also surely based on a shallow view of imagery. One of the ends for which sex was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. Thank you. Um, the uh, two speakers, although I'm sure that they're pretty tired, are, have agreed graciously to answer questions, and which we will do for about 15 minutes. I would ask you, please, to come to the uh, microphone uh, up here in the front to, to ask your question, to make it brief, and uh, to address it to either Sister Maureen Fiedler or Father Joseph Fessio. Or, bo- or, bo- or both. Or, or me. No. no. <laughs> I'm the moderator. I mustn't take sides. This is a question for, I don't know if this is on. Can't hear. I don't, I don't think it's on. Yeah. Sister Fiedler, mm-hmm. this is a question for you. Um, you have no magisterium and you're manifestly teaching against church doctrine, so you depend on the next generation of young women to carry forward your program. And you've presented us, I think, with a very shrill and angry and defensive uh, account of why you think women should be ordained, which I think, just speaking rhetorically, has not been very attractive to this woman anyway. And my question for you is, why is it that a woman, anthropologically, has to be authoritative, masculinist, activist, all of these things, in order to be fully a woman? Why can't she be? receptive, holy, contemplative, all of the traditional virtues that the church ascribes to her in order to be fully and completely a woman? Why is it that you are grasping towards this masculinist caricature, which in itself is debased, because activist aggression is not the highest vocation of man? And why, as young women, should we seek to imitate this? 
You ask a very good question. Um, it, I'm sorry if my presentation came across to you in the way you described, but let me say I'm for the both and. What I am arguing for is mutuality. A woman or a man may feel free to be passive or receptive or a helpmate to someone else, and either one ought to be free to be authoritative, which is not, may I say, the same thing as being aggressive. I think the proper terminology these days is assertive, to be assertive, to be in a leadership capacity, and to participate in decision-making. It seems to me that both of these aspects of gender roles, which ought to be adopted by both men and women, make us full human beings. This is mutuality. And I would agree with you on one thing, certainly aggression and violence, which have been historically and culturally more associated with males. I don't believe for one minute that's innate, but I think that it's more associated there, are certainly not attractive qualities. But I think that the, the ability to be a strong person, to put forth points of view, to hold leadership positions as well as to have the characteristic traditionally associated with a female, the blend of those in both sexes is what's desirable. Yes, this question assumes that Jesus personally instituted the seven sacraments, decided the matter in form, only bread and wine for Eucharist, only water for baptism. Uh, is it possible, sister, that Jesus could have said only male chromosome bodies can receive the sacrament of order? And if it is possible or not possible, depending on your answer, and the, the, the uh, scriptural argument that both male and female were made in God's image, and in Christ Jesus there is no male and female, what argument for women's ordination would not apply equally for same-sex marriages or even that a human being cannot choose a man over a woman because a man is uh, different from a woman in picking a spouse. Okay, well, first of all, let me say Jesus didn't, uh, I don't believe, institute something that he recognized and that we would recognize as seven sacraments. I think that those, as you well know, developed over time. Now, um, the second, could Jesus have said that only male chromosomes are necessary? Um, Given the person of Jesus, I don't believe so. If there's anything that Jesus was known for, it's inclusivity. And I think that's manifested. Rosemary Ruther, and since we're recommending books here, Rosemary Ruther has a marvelous new book called Women and Redemption, where she underlines this fact. The, the, the big reality, one of the large realities of Jesus' time, was the, were the rules of purity and impurity. And Jesus crossed them all. Women were impure. Gentiles were impure. The lame, the lepers, the poor, they were all impure. Jesus touched them. He healed them. He associated with them. He was totally inclusive. To think for one minute that he would have been exclusive in how he thinks about chromosomes, I think, at least for me, is totally, totally out of character with the redemptive nature of Jesus. And having said that, I think Jesus would be totally open to gay and lesbian people in our society. And I think it's long since that we should not be making fun of that and have total respect for people who have an orientation to the same gender. Just a couple of comments. Uh, first, you don't need me to need me to defend you, sister. I know that, but I, I, 
I did not think that your presentation was shrill and angry, at least the initial presentation. When we got back and forth, I got shrill and angry. You probably did too. So I mean, that's one of, the, you know, one of the pluses and minuses of having a discussion. Uh, uh, Jesus did institute seven sacraments, not, as you say, as we would know them today, but they were all instituted on the cross. Uh, and you can, you, can, you can see each of the seven sacraments on the cross if you have the spiritual eyes to see, and that'd be another lecture. Uh, but uh, as far as uh, inclusivity goes... Uh, you're right that Jesus did break a lot of the ritual laws to include everybody. But that would mean that it was a pure chance that he chose only 12 males to be his apostles uh, and the women had a role of service with them. But uh, I think that we're either going to have to say that Jesus intentionally chose 12 men to be his apostles or say that Jesus himself was sexist. May I respond to that? Sure. Um, a lot of the Vatican documents make the point that you just made, and I think both of us would agree that Jesus was actually rather progressive in his dealings with women in his day. Um, but Jesus was also very progressive in dealing with Gentiles. You know, he the centurion, uh, all, all sorts of the Samaritan woman at the well, and so forth. One could say, therefore, Jesus intentionally ordained, if you believe he did, only Jews. So why are Jews, why, why do, should not priests be simply Jews? You could apply that same logic to uh, ethnic group as well as to sex, I think. Unfortunately, I have to, I have to be quickly on this, though, because that, that is a common error to consider that gender is as accidental a quality as sex. Sex is a lot, <laughs> excuse me, gender as race, I meant. I mean, that is to say, the fact that they're Jews is much more accidental to their being than the fact that they're men or women. But anyway, we, we have we have different on that. But go ahead. This question is for uh, Sister Fiedler. If you believe that uh, Catholic teaching through the uh, male through the male fathers of the Church has been corrupted in some way or altered in some way from what Christ originally meant, and if you believe that the seven sacraments were not themselves instituted by Christ. Why do you believe it's necessary for anybody, even a woman, to receive the sacrament of order if Christ himself never instituted it as the church believes? And what is keeping you in that case from going and forming a church where you believe that women could be more equal? Um, all right. First of all, I think this is, this is to misunderstand the origins of Christianity. Jesus was, as I mentioned, uh, biblical scholars that are going back emphasize his Jewishness emphasized the fact that he was leading a reform within Judaism that only later became what we think of as a church, and only later did people look back, read into things that he, that he uh, said or did, and develop what we think of today as the seven sacraments. Why am I not going? I have no interest in forming my own church. I'm a Catholic to my bone marrow. And uh, what I believe I am called to do, and what I think women in in the church at large, but particularly women in religious communities are called to do, is to be at the prophetic cutting edge of this church and to call it to look at those origins, to uproot the sexism from those origins, some of which is on the bottom of your sheet here from those fathers of the church that you mentioned, um, which were very, very influenced by what we would certainly today understand as sexism. That whole tradition was passed down we're called to call the church forth from that to what I believe is the gospel tradition of equality. And that's what I'm about. 
And that's what I believe I'm called to do. And I believe that that is the highest kind of allegiance to the church that I can do. Uh, Sister Fiedler, I, um, I stand before you, a woman who is delighted in being a woman. I've Good. never felt I was less a Catholic because I couldn't be ordained any more than I think a man is more a Catholic because he can be ordained. There's something I'm trying to flesh out about you, though, and where you're coming from as a woman. And I think, for me, the bottom line question, which defines women, men also, but particularly women, I would like to know how you feel about abortion. I think, let me say, we agreed tonight that we would stay on topic. Father Denoya defined that. So I'd be glad to talk to you later about that, but I think we need to stick to the topic. I have, I have found this evening to be extremely enlightening and highly imaginative, especially the stories about what really happened in the garden. And I can picture myself driving home tonight and saying to the woman on my right, the void, uh, I would like to speak into the void tonight. <laughs> and she would say, I think the void has a headache. But my, my, my question for Father Fascio is this. We are approaching the end of the season of Lent. And almost 2,000 years ago, we had the first Easter morning. On that first Easter morning, when the rock was rolled away, the revelation of our faith, which you spoke of very early on in your discourse, was not delivered to men. It was delivered to women. And the women, in turn, delivered the message to the men, perhaps the most powerful message ever heard. My question to you, sir, is what revelatory messages am I missing because women are not allowed to preach in this church. Well, I'm not aware of women not being allowed to do exactly what the women did on on Easter Sunday. Uh, Women are allowed to preach. They're allowed to proclaim the faith. They're allowed to share the faith. But but I, I said, preach in the way the women at the tomb preached. But it's different when... The priest is standing in the place, not speaking for himself, but standing in the place of God, speaking in God's name. That may be an archaic concept, but some of us believe it's a handed-down concept from God himself. We want to, we want to respect that. So that the, the, the question is not whether women can communicate or share the faith, which they do beautifully in so many circumstances. The question is whether they can, as an official minister, speak in the name of Christ liturgically, uh, in celebrating the Word of God, and the church has said no to that for the reasons that I've tried to give. I want to just one, one little point on the, you know, the apostles being Jewish. I don't know how tall the apostles were, but let's just suppose they were all six feet tall. I mean, that if that had been the case, uh, that would not be the basic argument that we could only be ordained if you're six feet tall. There, there are some qualities which reach down deeper than others, and I think gender is one that reaches all the way to the heart. Um, we, have t- we have about three minutes left for questions. Could we have the next one, please? In addressing the question of whether women can be priests, I think there are two preliminary questions. One, what does it mean to be a woman? And two, what does it mean to be a priest? After listening to both of you tonight, I think I know where you stand on the first question. You've talked a lot about sex and gender roles, but you have not explicitly addressed the second question, what do you think it means to be a priest? Well, that's, that's very good. I, we should probably both answer this. Um, I think... Go ahead and preach. That's right. 
Well, certainly, uh, what it means to be a priest, I think, is primarily for me imaged in the washing at the feet of the, uh, the washing of the feet at the Last Supper. It means to serve and to serve the community and to serve the community in the name of Christ. And since I image Christ as fully as Brother Fessio does here, then I certainly am prepared to do that. Uh, that means I am ready to speak the word of God. I am ready to break the bread. I am ready to consecrate the wine. That sharing, that sacramental ministry, the breaking of the word, if you will, with the community, this is the work of the priest, I believe, but it's fundamentally a work of service, and it's not fundamentally a work of power. Although we've attached that to it, I think we need to go back to that earlier image of priesthood that Jesus conceived and handed down to us, and I think that that's what's key. I do agree with much of that, Sister. Uh, it's also true that not everything a priest does specifies him as a priest. Uh, and it, it's, it's also a reductionism to look at just those things which only a priest can do because a priest is a whole just like any other person is a whole person. But I think what identifies the priest is his complete union with Christ in which the priest says, this is my body, not the body of Father Fessio, this is the body of Christ, who is the bridegroom, pouring out his love, dying for the sake of his bride. And so I think the important thing here is the nuptial meaning of the priesthood, uh, without which you do not have a Catholic priesthood. Um, I think we can speak for all of us when we thank both Father Fessio and Sister Maureen Fiedler for their uh, putting forth their positions with such strength. We want to thank also the organizers, the students, and others who planned this and who worked very hard to bring it about. Please join me in thanking all of them. Let me say that although as we agreed we would bring the uh, public portion of this event to a close uh, now with the prayer, there is certainly ample opportunity at least until these two people are prepared to answer questions for you to have a discussion with them. We're going to close with a prayer uh, to the Holy Spirit also uh, uh, with Our Lady's intercession mentioned. Holy and Divine Spirit, through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, bring the fullness of your gifts into our hearts. Comforted and strengthened by you, may we live according to your will, and may we die praising your infinite mercy. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.